Welcome everyone to what is another week of the Connecting Construction podcast hosted by myself, Evan Hill, as well as Matt Sprague and Dan Connery. We are back to episode three after a couple week break. Uh, Time has flown by over here in quarantine. We are all in different states spread around the country, but we're super excited to get back to it. Uh, Before I introduce our guest for the week, I want to cover a quick couple housekeeping items. Number one, if you missed episode two, uh, which I think debuted either two or three weeks ago, we had Joe Eberle on of Trimble, who works very closely with the contractor market. We had some great banter around old processes, the nightmare that is paper, the future of remote work, something that I'm super passionate about. Uh, Most of us here actually work remotely and a a lot more uh, controversial topics that we discussed. So go back and listen to episode number two. You can find it on Spotify or the eBuilder blog. It's both it's in both locations and we had some really good conversations. So go ahead and check that out. Um, And I do have to drop one little shameless plug. The eBuilder team does have an upcoming webinar on July 30th all around document management and how a proper document management system with construction software can completely change the outcome of your capital program. So definitely check that out, July 30th, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Definitely something to look forward to. Um, But those are the two administrative items that I wanted to get out of the way. And now I would like to stop talking and introduce our guest for the week. James, I'm not going to pronounce your last name just yet because I don't want to mispronunciate it. I will let you introduce yourself, but I know um, I know you and Dan actually go back either, I think it might be a couple of years or a couple of months, something in that time range. Uh, he, Dan was actually the one that introduced me to you and mentioned that you might be a good person to come on the show. So we're super excited to have you. I know you're a little bit of a rock star and and someone who's famous on LinkedIn. So grateful to have you here, but Hey, James, introduce yourself a little bit about you personally, professionally, your background and how you and Dan came to know each other. Sure. No, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on the show. I like talking about construction. Um, so James Hillegas, I guess that's how you say my last name. And then, um, so as far as Dan and I first met, I think it was a post about submittals or submittal logs. I think I try and when I make a video online, I try and be a very objective with what I'm just talking about and try and promote discussion around a point. Now, obviously making a video by yourself is kind of one, it's awkward too. It's like, there's no rebuttals. So you're trying to come up with them as, as you're going through the process and just lay out just the facts of the situation without any real bias. And because I am you know, a contractor, I don't have any skin in the game as to whether you choose any of the software platforms that are available to us. So that's kind of the goal. Um, as far as background goes, construction has just been what I grew up liking. I mean, I, I don't understand it. I grew up behind a farm and I just always liked big machines. I went to school for engineering, have done the design side, didn't really like it and uh, just chose to stick with construction and kind of found the technology I kind of stumbled into, you know, I wasn't a huge computers kid and, you know, we didn't have cable growing up or anything like that or video games. Um, I started doing drones in like 2015, 2016 as a bridge engineer. And um, I was speaking to like executives at various engineering companies where where I grew up in Ohio. And I was like, this is kind of odd. You know, I was still in college at the time. I mean, I hadn't graduated. I was like, this, this could be like, this is going to be the ticket. 
like this is what I'll just I'll just pick this up and I'll run with it. And that's kind of what I've done ever since is like, you know, I'll use technology as my way to to you know grow to the top essentially is what I decided to do and here we are. And just to clarify, James, did you go to the Ohio State University? I know you're from Ohio. I I applied. I was accepted as a mechanical engineer. I crashed a truck my senior year of college, so I went. To, <laughs> that took a lot of money and um, texting and driving. I learned that lesson the hard way. And um, I went to the University of Akron and I just lived at home. But yeah, I never rooted for any University of Akron sports. I could care less about the program. I just wanted Ohio State till I die. <laughs> well, we were talking about off this whole football conversation offline, so I'll, I'll be respectful of of your football team, even though uh, you guys kicked our butts in the Rose Bowl. So I, I respect that. Um, well, hey, happy to have you on the show. Let's dive right into the topics that we've put together. Um, I really want to sort of pick your brain in, in this time and have the audience learn from you. So right, right off the bat, you don't work in obviously technology or software. So I'm, I'm grateful to have you as sort of like a third party sort of independent blue collar, somebody who's truly in the field, getting their hands dirty type of perspective. So right off the bat, what technologies and software are you know exciting to you right now in the construction space? This could be anything from AI to software to technology to robots. W what do you have your eyes on? What's interesting you right now? Uh, I'm still very, I still am very involved with VDC or BIM or whatever three letter acronym people want to use for it. I don't think you know, obviously people like have like 4D and 5D and 12D and 9D, you're like, we haven't even finished the whole 3D thing yet. And we're already like, you know, it's like talking about how you're going to win the Super Bowl. And it's like, dude, you haven't even done the first preseason game. Like, um, what are you talking about? So I'm very big into BDC. Um, obviously, it drives a lot of processes. Uh, for us, you know, we, we roll our own studs off of it now. So we're buying coils from the mill, the master coils that you see, you know, the big 40,000 our uh, ton coils down the highway so we buy coils like that uh, we slid them down to uh, 12 inch widths or seven inch widths and change obviously you know if you were to take a stud and flatten it all the way back out with the flanges and the returns um, so it drives a lot of processes in the shop for us which it does the same for the mechanical trades electrical trades and plumbing trades i'm just speaking specifically to framing because that's you know my niche so to speak um, but each trade has their own tools that are ran off of their VDC processes from like the tiger stop and the mechanical electrical world and plumbing world to the pipe server and the pipe welding and all that other kind of stuff. I'm not an expert in, so I won't really touch on it, but I know it, I'm aware of it. Um, so VDC is a huge one again, and then the tying into the robotics in the shop. So there's a couple of things that we're working on internally, um, testing out some, you know, other platforms to, uh, uh, leverage some of the data from the VDC. You know, everything from procurement, um, tracking what's been completed, what's been installed, and really leveraging the data behind it. I think that's one of the big things we overlook is there's the model is really just a, a Power BI version for a construction product, if it makes sense. The model just helps to make it easier to digest, like all the parameters that go into a building, the lengths of things, the heights of things, the weights of things, you know, where things are located, what what's the finish here, you know, all that, all that kind of information. What's the rating here? You know, technically you could look, I mean, you can pull out of Revit, which is the main modeling software that a lot of us use, set up an access database. And technically you can look at a construction project as a giant list of rows and columns, and or you can look at a 3D model. We just choose to look at a 3D model because it makes a hell of a lot more sense. 
James, tell me a little bit more about your uh, BIM background. You mentioned that briefly. So I never had, um, I guess I'll say this out loud, never had formal BIM training. I started, I worked for a design firm uh, as a co-op slash summer intern for three years through like the end of my undergrad and into grad school. And I learned Revit there. It was right when it was 2014. So we were, they were right in the process of like moving a lot of uh, AutoCAD details into Revit. So that was like one of my summer projects was moving things into Revit um, from AutoCAD um, details for the structural department. From there, I, I learned all off of YouTube and the internet, the rest of all the VDC stuff. And I've worked as part of VDC group, but I've never actually technically been trained by a former VDC manager. I just all off the internet completely besides that little bit of experience at work was just off of Google and then agreeing to projects that I really had no idea what the heck I was doing. And then realizing like, I got to figure this out. And that's just how it's always worked. Yeah. So one of the things that James that we've talked about here at, uh, at Trimble is a uh, model so accurate you can build from them. So Evan and, and uh, Matt know that I have a, uh, a, a very negative reaction to as built. Uh, it's one of the documents I hope to eliminate from this industry before I retire. Uh, so it sounds like uh, at least you're, you're part of the way there, if not quite a bit of the way there. So you're doing your models and then you're actually fabricating from them and you're doing prefabrication so that you can take out, take your stuff out onto the field and then into the field. And what the field's really doing is assembly. Uh, could you just uh, unpack that a little bit for me? And, and also I'd like to, uh, when you contrast pre to how you're doing things now, what's been the productivity improvement? Sure. sure. So to unpack it a little bit more. So right now, you know, a lot of stuff is still at least in the, I grew up in the Midwest. I just moved to the Southeast. So I'm not, I can't really speak a whole lot for this, how the Southeast works in terms of the construction market because I'm just, I don't know that much yet. Um, but at least in the Midwest, a lot of the stuff was still very traditional design build. There'd be a, or uh, excuse me, design bid build type of procurement process. There were a few design builds, but they weren't they weren't numerous by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we get a job and from there, you know, we get whatever models where we can get access to, you know, coordination files from the GC, other trades, um, mainly mechanical and structural steel, just because they're the two biggest ones we have to coordinate with. The other ones aren't as critical, but it still is nice to do it if we can. Um, I, once I get the design team's models, I'll make the decision just based on my gut feel if, if it's usable or if I should just build one from scratch. Sometimes the design team even models in like software like Archicad or software we just can't work with. So at that point I'm stuck. To, I just do my own model anyway, because um, I have to. So once I once we do our modeling, we you know coordinate as much as we can, RFI as many design omissions that we come across, like missing details or just constructability issues that you know, we see as we're going through the process, um, you know, once everything's approved, we're ordering directly off of what I modeled. So in my prior life, I would order directly off of what I modeled, like, uh, you know, stud sizes and lengths were ordered directly from Clark Dietrich. Everything was pre-cut and Clark Dietrich would ship it to us. Um, now we're rolling our own stud. So I create essentially, which is a CNC file that, you know, if I draw it wrong, it's coming out wrong. And the guys can't, it's a little bit complicated to explain because it's very different from what people are used to, but there's no more layout for us to do in the shop. The track, yeah, 
I'm going to use some terms that so people can still get an idea of what it is, but it's a little bit different than the traditional stud and track setup. The track is lipped where our stud goes. So there's no more layout for a guy to do. So literally, if it's not lipped there, there's not a way for you to get the stud. You'd have to force it, trim stuff. It's just not designed to go together that way. Things are dimpled. So it's, it's like putting together Legos at that point. Um, then from there, you know, things are packaged and shipped to site essentially is how that process kind of works. Does that answer your unpacking part of the question? Yep. So as far as productivity gains go, uh, you can easily, so the, the frame cast system, which is our stud roller, I've only talked with other contractors that have used them. I haven't, and I'm going off of what they're telling me as far as productivity gains go. Um, doing panels in the shop, you can typically like, I would say somewhere between 20 to 50% W production. Like, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not as straightforward as just opening a shop and just going with it. Um, there's a lot of things that go into really you start to learn a lot more of the logistics of how things work, like where you're receiving materials in, when do you receive materials in, how many guys do you have in the shop, how is it set up, how does it flow, you know, what laydown do you have, what laydown do you have on the job site. There's a lot of things that make it very tough to say, this is what you should do. There's a lot of nuances that you just, and the best way to learn is either by you know, finding a consultant, just flat out starting it and just figuring out the hard way or trying to find a peer network or similar contractor that doesn't compete in your market to, to learn from. Yeah, the, the interesting part, and I know I think Matt had a question for you, but the, the interesting part is when, uh, so I've been in the industry a little bit longer than you, uh, so a lot longer, and that's more my age, uh, my own age. But the uh, so I remember for years, for for decades, uh, people in the industry would get very defensive when manufacturing was used as a comparison to construction, and it was always no, it's nothing like uh, manufacturing is nothing like construction. Stop trying to bring lean techniques from manufacturing into construction. And finally, in the last three to five years. I've seen people finally getting it because everything you just explained is exactly what a manufacturing plant does. They do flow and Kanban boards and they do all this work to optimize material flow. You don't have workers waiting on work or work waiting for a worker. Um, so it, it's fascinating with the prefabrication to finally see people understanding that in a perfect world and hopefully in the near term, all that's gonna be happening on site is assembly. Uh, no actual building is happening uh, uh, from raw material to construction. So anyway, so yes, thank you. Sure. So my, um, my question has to do with uh, resistance is uh, so, so for you being a younger generation coming in and, and being, um, you know, you know, all for technology and the adoption and seeing the value of moving from, you know, 2D to 3D and, and everything we just talked about. From your experiences, what is there still resistance? Where is it coming from? Is it a generation thing? And have you seen um, an organization combat that resistance and do a good job of change management in moving people into, into utilizing 3D? So uh, the Resistance to change, I think, is more of the personality than less of the generation of the person themselves. Um, you know, I, I worked with a foreman at the last place I worked in Cleveland, phenomenal foreman. I, 
I loved working with the guy. Like I still text him to this day. Um, once or twice a week, we still text back and forth. Um, and he, he was very open to it. I think a lot of it has to do with how, how the, a lot of it has to do with the semantics of how the message comes across. I learned very early on the first job I did out of school that one, I don't know crap. Two, uh, shut up and listen. And three, just watch. And four, show how much you care. Um, you know, I had a, I talked to the glazing foreman on a, it was a $170 million hospital tower. And I was like putting the superintendent role for the exterior of the building, not what I should have been doing. I didn't know. I should not have been. There's no way that was a terrible idea, but it is what it is. And it happened. So I learned a lot through the hard way of talking with those guys and, and being there on the weekends and just showing that I, even though they knew I didn't know anything, well, I knew stuff, but I didn't know enough stuff. Let's put it that way. Um, just showing that you cared, they really would like kind of guide you through it and say like, you know, this is why we do this, or this is why we do this. So I mean, really showing, if you come in and say like, we're going to change. Okay. But, and you haven't shown that you cared about the people themselves. Well, they're going to probably put up a wall. Cause like, you know, who's this guy or this gal coming here and saying, you know, we're going to do X, Y, Z. You know, they don't even, they don't care. They've never, I've never seen you before. I've never talked to you before. I don't even know you. But if you build just a relationship with them, at the end of the day, we're all we're all people. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. So if you can build rapport, I think it goes over a lot easier. You know, we we would eat wings in the shop. We would make competitions in the shop. We had bets in the shop. You know, just simple stuff like that. And just then the dialogue's a lot. It's a lot cleaner. If you come, it can be very challenging to just come out of the blue because I tried. To, I mean, I trust me. I learned the hard way. That's the only reason I know this is. And then people are like, well, who, you don't, I don't know you. I don't trust you. The biggest thing is trust. I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, you know, I, I going the extra mile for the guys in the field and just showing that you care. You know, there were times where we messed up stuff in the shop and I drove out the one ton with a load of whatever, cause we, you know, stuff got messed up. It happens. And then once they realize that you have their back and you care, I think a lot of the other stuff becomes the semantics. And then we teach each other stuff, you know, they would challenge me to like drill in like a three inch screw without holding it and only using one hand. You know, most people like hold the screw and with their other hand while they're drilling, well, they would try and get me to do it without holding it and show me how to do it. And I was showing how to use plan grid, just stuff like that. I think a lot of people try and now I'm not saying this is you, I'm just saying in general in the industry, a lot of people are trying to overcomplicate it to like, you know, um, it's like this huge, like this war that we have between the field and the office or the, tech people in the off field like for people one and they just got to trust you. And then the last thing is the way to explain it is like, we're just trying to remain competitive. Like you have a family, you have kids, you have dreams, you have goals, you have wants. You know, if we can't remain competitive, then we're not going to be around as a business much longer. And you're not going to have a job much longer. So that's the other way to frame it is like, whatever that thing is for you, whether it's a house, a vacation, a family education for your kids, everyone's driven by something different. That's, another way to frame it that sometimes can work. And I think a, a, a thing I would build on, James, for you just said is the, um, I learned early in my career uh, by observing people, especially technology people, so on our side of the equation, who come across with a high degree of arrogance and feeling superior to people in construction. And to your point, as far as you may be great at using your iPad, but can you drive a three and screw in with just one hand? Uh, so just because you're you're better at something doesn't mean you're better at everything. And uh, I watched a lot of technology companies fail that. I also like your concept about 
not overcomplicating it. And I think a lot of technology, especially startups, try to solve problems that nobody actually has uh, or just isn't worth solving. So anyways, I don't have a question behind that. I was just reflecting on on uh, on what you said, so. Yeah, moving on to sort of the next concept I wanted to discuss with you, James. I think Dan actually may have been the one to, to uh, prompt this into the conversation is uh, the, the lens of the subcontractor or the contractor into projects. Everybody seems to try to push down all the project risk onto the subs and the suppliers. What, you know, as somebody who's grown up through that sort of perspective as a contractor, as a subcontractor, what has been your perspective slash experience on assuming that risk in the industry throughout your career? So it happens. Construction is a very tough industry to operate a business in. I'm going to try and speak openly and honestly as possible on this one. This is definitely going to, this might ruffle some feathers, but it's the truth. A lot of people think anybody can do construction. They think it's very simple and you just, you know, build whatever. And at the end of the day, it's not so simple. Let's imagine we're standing in an empty field and in 18 months, 24 months, 36 months, whatever the duration happens to be, there's going to be a, a building. In this case, it'll be a hospital. It's gonna defy gravity. It's going to keep out the elements, whether you're, they're hurricanes or it's snow or wherever the building happens to be located, earthquakes, if it's in California. It's going to um, not burn down. It's going to have security systems to keep you know, certain people out that shouldn't be in. It's going to uh, control water so it doesn't go all over the floor. It's going to um, provide life-saving support or give new life however the hospital is surfaced. And we have all this stuff in 3D space and we're all gonna make it work. Go for it. Well, it's, it's not that simple. And a lot of people think you can just pull anybody off the street, give them a hard hat and away you go. And there are certain ways that projects are set up to where you have to work within certain constraints that are given to you. And you have certain production rates that are based on your contract value. And you're also given a less than, sometimes you have to work with a less than ideal skill set. And you also assume a lot of risk as a subcontractor. So this is one, one of the reasons why we try and do prefab because it tries to get us at least some form of control. And that's why some people are just going to robotics because I mean, it's just the truth that they, there's a lot of things that financially happen as a contractor that you just don't have a lot of control over based on how contracts are set up and written and a lot of stipulations given to you. And that's why people are, are turning to prefab and robotics for those that are more advanced in it. It's, I don't necessarily agree with it. It's the way it is. Um, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes as to like what that is. And I mean, I can definitely talk about it. I have no problem doing it, but that could be a conversation offline if you wanted to. Yeah. And so along those lines, though, uh, if you had the proverbial magic wand and you could build your own contractual relationships, right? So you talked about the traditional uh, uh, design bid build, then it was design build. Uh, there's design build companies and then there's design build partnerships. And then IPD started to make a little bit of inroads, specifically in very complicated, high cost hospitals 
tend to be where it really worked, where it was a shared contractual model, shared risk reward. Uh, is I have a theory that this is a an artifact. The the, the risk and the way projects are managed is a, is a direct artifact of the contracts that are in place, and so it's a self fulfilling prophecy. I have told people that don't understand what our industry is about that it's a miracle. That project you just talked about, when it's done, I stand back and look at that and say, that's a miracle. It's a miracle and it's a testament to the people who worked on that project because I think the contracts are written to make sure that project doesn't happen successfully. Uh, I just be curious, am I nuts? Am I off base or somewhere between? And if you could fix it, what would you do? No, I, I mean, no, it, one, it starts with just what you can control. Um, I wrote on the mirror this pat uh, within the last three months, just control what you can. That's all I can do. It's all we can do is control what, what we can do. So I think I mean, one of the things is like industrialized construction, right? Building stuff in a shop, is it industrialized? Eh, maybe, but the procurement process still isn't very industrialized, so to speak. Like if you look at industrialized, you know, let's look at cars, Ford, Chevrolet, Toyota, Tesla, pick your brand, I don't care. Um, same with Apple or any of the hardware manufacturers. You know, you just go to the store and buy it. You don't really negotiate with Apple for like, no, that iPhone is like 400 bucks. You know, come on, what can you do? That kind of, So it's not really in building stuff indoors. Maybe it's industrialized, but the process of procurement is not very industrialized. And if you look at, um, I mean, the other things is when we start a job, there's just so many possibilities. And most people don't even know what they want. And you look at buying anything else, they, you know, cars have a reasonable amount of possibilities as to what they could be, different trim levels and stuff like that. But there's still a set range of possibilities for you. Likewise, I mean, Apple, I think, gives you like three things, like screen size, memory size. And I don't know. The, I don't even know what the third one is. Um, so I think that's one thing is trying to reduce the wide, vast range of variables that you can have uh, would help. And then the. The bigger challenge is like our teams are always different, right? Um, the teams are always different. And if you look at any successful team, with, you know, I think UCLA, you know, a lot of people look at the Bulls for this, the 90s and that era of Michael Jordan, but a lot of people forget about UCLA and John Wooden. I mean, the guy won 10 national titles. Um, there's something there to be said for it. So I think trying to keep some some form of a coherent team. And construction is very weird because there's so many expertises that's even a word needed to complete a project from all the engineers, to all the contractors that uh, it's very hard for one company to have all that in house. Um, and I've even talked to companies that are people that work for companies that do have all, a lot of that in house or most of that in house. And they said, we still act like two like separate entities. Right. Um, so there's a challenge with, you know, having a lot of that built up in terms of, you know, Yes, it'd be ideal if it was all one company, so we'd have a consistent team. But on the other side, it's a very tough business decision because that's a lot of overhead and a lot of other things that go into that process. So I think a lot of this just comes down to the team and constantly changing that dynamic, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I was just wondering, uh, two follow-up questions, and I'll let Matt or, or Evan go. It's really, because I understand that the, the, the days of a master builder that has everything underneath them with how complicated and that's only accelerating. The complexity of these projects is just um, boggled when I see some of the stuff that's being done. You talked about defying gravity. Uh, there's things to me that in the way I was trained is defying physics, which I know is not actually true, but it seems like it is. The materials that are coming out constantly are just amazing. 
but uh, I'm wondering around contractual vehicles. So although you're separate legal entities, because uh, at Trimble, we work with the owners and the general contractors and the subcontractors. So we're fortunate enough to actually work with the entire supply chain. Uh, but when we talk about spinning up that team, that situational team around a project, it seems like there could be better contractual vehicles. So the risk and rewards are shared so that there's a financial incentive by the organizations not to, uh, one of the things you and I met in DC at a Blue, at a Blue Beam conference, and you talked about, uh, I'm probably gonna misstate this, so I'd ask you to correct it, but it's basically, if you don't know who's carrying all the risk, then it's you. Um, you're the one that's actually carrying, because everybody figured how to shift it over to you because you don't know what the hell's going on. Um, but if you had a thing that said, listen, we all have the risk. So if the mechanical person comes in and screws the project up, it's not just the mechanical contractor that's going to take the beating. We're all going to take it. So you talked about people who, who stepped out and helped you, even it probably wasn't in their best interest, uh, but they did it because you built trust with them. So it seems to me the contracts are built to, to deteriorate trust um, or certainly not to build trust. So if you could say, you know what, let's all just sign a single contract, would that fix it or is it still a people problem? No, I, uh, I think we hide a lot behind legal stuff. You know, most of the people actually performing the work, I wouldn't say most, but I mean, one, I'm not a lawyer, I've never been trained in legal crap. It's confusing as hell. Um, it should be one page, like, and it should be written in English, not some other language that everybody is clearly like we can write it in crayon. I don't care, but it should be simple. This is, we complicate things get complicated or we overcomplicate things. And there's usually a reason for it. So that way people can't understand the truth or figure out what the truth is becomes harder to figure out for those people that would don't want to, don't want to put the time in, don't care, whatever the case happens to be. You know, we, I think we just overcomplicate things and ups, you know, make things obscure for, for reason. Like there's a reason that things are that complicated. Should be, we're building a building. Okay. And this is how it's going to work. And like you said, if one contractor falls down and we had this happen on many jobs, there'd be some jobs we'd prefab and, you know, we would keep up with the steel guy erecting steel. Like he couldn't get out in front of us fast enough. And so like, yeah, we look good, but like, you know, we're in the Mason wasn't even anywhere close behind us. So it's like, they're still only as fast as your slowest player. Even if one of your players is like super quick because they're prefabbing or whatever, if like the nine other guys aren't doing it, then the job's not, you know, that guy might do okay, but everybody else is still, the team, overall team effort is not, not where it needs to be. So I think we just hide behind contracts. We don't just talk about what, what we all want. You know, I don't know. I, I, legal stuff definitely just gets us all in trouble. Yep. I agree. All right. And I'll let, let Matt go, but I'm not, my, my, one of my statements is the second somebody refers to a contract, that lets me know the relationship is dead. Because nobody goes to a two people that trust each other, high degree, aren't going to go back and say, yeah, but in paragraph five, subsection two, sentence three, you said. It's like, yeah, that that's like your wife or your spouse uh, talking about your prenup. It's like, yeah, that's, that's not going to be a good conversation. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was like, I was, I was, I was starting to be interested to have you uh, dig yourself a hole with your wife. <laughs> conversation, so I was going to let you go. Um, so 
I'm going to kind of uh, kind of roll back the conversation a, a little bit. We were uh, the, the the idea of, of skilled labor was brought up five five minutes ago. Um, so over the past month or so, we've been doing an internal survey with our our, our GC customer uh, within Project Site. Ask them five or six different questions, but one of them was, you know, what is the what within the industry? What what is your largest concern? And um, I want to say close to 50% of, of all, all of the uh, uh, contractors that responded, it was the skilled labor shortage. Um, and that, and, and the kind of the follow-up question is, is do you see technology helping you with that? And, you know, they're obviously, we're, we're, we're talking to a bunch of people that are utilizing technology. So the answer was yes. However, I, I, I having conversations, you know, around where I live and, and out about, you know, when, when they say, what do you do? You know, I just generalize, you know, I work for a construction technology company and a lot of times I'm like, oh, you're taking away all the good jobs for, you know, for all these people, for all these people. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing basically two sides of a story uh, in terms of that there's a skilled labor shortage and we need technology to, 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 to combat it. And that technology is taking away the skilled, uh, the, the skilled labor from, from where you sit, what, where, where's the actual truth? Uh, in, in, in your opinion? And is technology a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, I'm not God, so I don't know if I know the truth, but I can tell you what I interpret. Um, yep. I think there's a lot, there's a lot deeper and bigger issues than just, it's easy. I think sometimes we get distracted with like the surface level issues of, of things. It's like, you know, um, someone's got diabetes, like kid taking away their Doritos or something like that's not going to solve the problem. It's like a symptom. It's not the problem. Um, so you have, uh, I mean, this is a, I mean, it's a deep rabbit hole, but you have so many different variables. I don't even think everybody understands what all of them are to like really put together. You have a whole generation that was taught to go to college, which failed to teach anybody critical thinking um, or how to learn on their own. You have uh, a shortage in skilled labor because you know, working hard or whatever it is, is not attractive. Um, you have uh, increasing projects and complexity, schedule, money, all the variables. So you have, you know, people adding robotics, but how do you tell someone like, oh, you should go into the trades, but the robots are coming. It's like, there's so many different things that are like variables and it's, there's no real one right answer per se. Um, again, technology is a tool, just like anything, a fork, a spoon, you know, and you can use it however you want. Um, it's a tool at the end of the day. It's how you use it. That's what makes it. So I think the biggest thing is just picking a path. I mean, yeah, there's a skilled labor shortage. People could always use more, more people. Um, I don't know what the extent of it is for every company, um, but making, just taking the opportunity that you have and running with it, whether it's working for at a tech company or if it's working for a construction company or if it's being a carpenter in the field, you know, one of the big things is like have doing VDC. If you have field experience, like that's something you can easily go into. You can work, you can work in the union or non-union shop or environment for a couple of years, learn a specific trade, and then go and be on the technology side and have a much better understanding of, of what's actually going on if you have that route. So there's a lot of things to like unpack there. It can be a pretty deep rabbit hole, but that's kind of, I guess, the overarching concept of what you see there. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the... The interesting part, James, you mentioned about uh, critical thinking or lack thereof. I remember you did a, a LinkedIn post 
on that uh, on that topic of uh, uh, and what that reminded me of is way back in the day when I was in graduate school, one of the complaints, this is back in the 90s, and it's the same complaint now in 2020, is that people don't understand that the answers the tool is giving them can't possibly be correct. Uh, and one example was I was a mechanical engineer and I was my specialty in graduate school was fluid dynamics. And so one of the tools we use for modeling, not uh, visual modeling, just mathematical modeling. Uh, somebody, a kid put a, 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 some variables in and the thing came out like a six inch piece of ductile iron was putting out like 6 million cubic feet of water a second. And they just handed the answer and you're like, do you think that's possibly correct? Is that, could there be a mistake you made somewhere in the, in the, in the assumptions you made? No, it's, it, that's what the thing said. Because you don't understand that can't be possibly, it's beyond physics. You can't pump that much water through that small of a pipe. It's not possible. And they're like, no, it, 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 that's what the computer says. And I sense that now of, of um, that lack of critical thinking to understand that what you put on is not, what you put in and what you're getting out can't possibly be, uh, can't be accurate. So yeah, that's a, that it's, it is interesting, people come overly dependent, but I also want to echo something you mentioned. Uh, it was uh, an internal Trimble podcast, and I tell the story quite a bit internally of a, it was a throwaway statement. What I call it, it was a, something somebody just said in order to bridge between two major points they wanted to make, and yet it was the entire, most profound part of the entire podcast for me, and that was education's free. And you effectively mentioned that, like you didn't have to go spend X number of thousands of dollars to learn how to use BIM technology. You just went on YouTube. So the only cost to you was your time and you figured out what you needed because it's just in time education. You need to know how to solve this problem. You figure out how to solve that problem. Uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are specifically around uh, that education's free and the ability for anyone to, to within reason, there's certain things that require repetition. Uh, I'm learning, I'm building a fireplace. So I learned masonry. <laughs> I got much better as I, as I completed this project, uh, but I learned the basics by watching YouTube videos. I didn't have to go have a Mason come and teach me. It's just, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I actually wrote, I've written a book or the past three or four months, like a hundred words a day, it's somewhere around 12,000 words on it. Um, but I think uh, the lifespan of college or what has traditionally been perceived as college is, is dwindling. Um, you know, I took Harvard CS50 course, which is their introduction to computer science for free. I mean, uh, Harvard costs what, 60 grand a year or something ridiculous. I did it for free in my room. Um, so if Harvard, all Harvard and MIT have is a brand, and if they're giving it away for free online, what is really left behind the veil of the brand? The other thing is, I think college gets people very emotional. Like there's these huge experiences at college now. Dorms are nice, lazy rivers, spas, thingamajiggers. They're lazy very, rivers? Did I go to the wrong college? What a lazy river. <laughs> I went to the wrong school, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, but colleges have a lot of these experiential things, which at the end of the day, you're paying for as a, as a student, whether you use them or not. 
So the cost is going up, the return is going way down, and they're not they're just not teaching how to critically think. And the only thing I can tell you is stuff's going to continue to change. And, and anything we're taught in regardless of degree field these days is like useless. And some degree fields, six months, like computer science, because how fast it's changing, other degree fields, maybe a couple of years. So if you can't teach yourself the new thing or what's coming next, like you're in a world of hurt. Like I don't know the way to tell you. So, um, and then like, there's just other degrees that I don't know. Like if you like art history, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a very emotional person. I'm an engineer and you can lock me in a corner and leave me in a basement and I'll be fine. So, but like art history, if you're that obsessed with art and you like it that much, then just go on Google. The art museum is going to hire the guy that has a passion for it and knows all about Picasso or the Sistine Chapel or, you know, whatever piece of art work there is. I'm not knowledgeable enough to speak about it, but they're going to hire that guy or the guy with like 12 degrees and, quarter million dollars in debt that doesn't really like it it's the passion that comes to me that's why i the videos i make work because it's it's the passion behind it i don't and i do these in my bedroom with like beds behind me and bunk beds like they're not like some high production studio in hollywood like it's like a random kid making videos in a room it's the passion that comes through it's not the superficial paperwork behind it james i, I love that and i want to just unpack that uh, question from a little bit of a different angle. So to give you a little bit of context, Matt and I are currently, well, I shouldn't say and I, it's really just Matt who's rolling, rolling out uh, a project site partnership with several different universities, hopefully to provide a little bit more hands-on educational material. You mentioned that critical thinking was obviously one of those key areas that a lot of colleges fail to address. You know, you're still, as far as I can tell visually, you're still fairly early in your career. I don't think you're 40s or 50s yet. Uh, what would you say is the one major skill that you said that you would wish you had learned within your major that would be really specifically um, applicable to your current career? And I want to dig a little bit deeper than just critical thinking, which I, I think your point is valid, but uh, unpack that a little bit further for me. I think the other one is just communicating with people. It kind of goes back to the early, the very early questions, which was, um, um, you know, how to communicate with the field or people that don't get technology or whatever the case might be. Um, you know, growing up, um, obviously this could be taken in a, in a political context, which there's nothing wrong with it, but it's like growing up, I was a pretty big, like I'm only driving American cars, yada, 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 whatever, you know, had a Chevy Silverado and a Ford Ranger and a Chevy, I had two Chevy trucks. Then I, I have a Toyota, and and when Tesla first came out, I was like, Tesla's stupid. I don't get it. You know, I still don't think Tesla has a soul. I respect Elon Musk a lot, but it doesn't have a soul in terms of like the audible feedback. I think. Uh, side note, I think for electric cars to be very successful, the generation has to have never experienced yeah. gas or internal combustion. There is. I've ridden in the same day my uncle's P100D and my uncle's Mustang GT500. Both are fast. One just has a way different experience. And because you just know of the audible feedback. And some people don't like it. I get it. You know, it's not for everybody. But anyway. Um, so you're not going to so, be buying a Cybertruck? Is that is that what I'm hearing from you, James? I don't think I'll be buying a Cybertruck. I, just, <laughs> I don't like it. That doesn't... So the the there's still a couple of hurdles I think with electric vehicles like the charging times and then the where the chargers are there's just some the hurdles that are left um, with it but I won't be won't be buying a cyber truck but I respect Elon Musk that man is a genius 
I think that ball smashing window thing was slightly planned because it got that video all over the internet and the dude got pre-sales out of it. I mean, Elon, well, it might've been an accident. Elon Musk is by no means an idiot and he knows how to play the cards appropriately. Um, so back to your question on the universities, um, I think the biggest thing is like communicating with people um, and how to work in groups. You know, you're kind of given homework assignments and you can kind of work on it by yourself, but how to work on work with people in groups and really have like discussions where you don't agree on all the points and trying to understand what their viewpoint is. You know, I mean, growing up, I was pretty stubborn in terms of what I did and I would not speak to anybody. And actually tonight I'm gonna have a phone call with somebody that we don't see eye to eye politically. And I just texted them. I was like, look, man, I just want to understand what your viewpoints are. Um, you know, I don't want to change them. I don't, I don't even want to tell you what my, I don't have to tell you why. I just want to understand where you're coming from. And if I can understand where you're coming from, then we can figure out what, what way to get there. The college doesn't really give you any of that, that people skills or that sales skills or any of the skills that it really takes to like move yourself in a career and talking to people. So I think those are some of the, the bigger things is, and you, you need pressure to really make that happen. And you need to have hard conversations to make it happen. You know, talking about like, I like the Pittsburgh Steelers and I like the Cleveland. Like, that's stupid, dude. No one cares. Okay. That's not no confrontation there. It's, it's a meaningless conversation. Like, I don't like the team up north, but I dated a girl that root of the team up north one time. Okay. So um, I was going to ask you to make it personal. I was going to say, would you marry, would you marry somebody from the team up north? I would, but I'm not going to root for them. <laughs> we a pretty big deal here, James. <laughs> we all make mistakes in life, okay? I can't help you. Um, so I think that's like those are the biggest things is, is communicating with people and how to do it and how to like just understand their body language and their their stuff. And that's been something I've had to work at because I'm I'm an I'm an engineer. I, I'm not a people person by any stretch of the imagination. Like I don't. Um. So I think that's one of the biggest things is, is that, and it's not via texting. It's not ideally a phone call. Cause there's a lot of like audible, audio, audible things that get picked up with the way people say things, you know, the pauses and the inflections and the voice and the up downs, like text messages, like can come across. It's how the user, it's not how you say it. It's how the user interprets it. Cause it's a text message. And that's like why with this one person in particular, I was like, look, I'll call you, but I'm not texting about this because this is not going to get us anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I would argue, James, that everything you said about the core communication skills is something I actually also think the high school system is failing. I think the failure starts far earlier in the educational process and college doesn't do anything to, uh, to augment that. Uh, you know, you need, I tell my kids, there's two skills you need. You need how to communicate effectively verbally and in writing and if you can do those two things and, and you have a reasonable level of intelligence then it goes back to your point then it's just about passion uh, because everything breaks down there either you're, you're incapable of communicate you can't communicate with somebody else effectively i like your concept about conflict conflict i was fortunate i had a professor it wasn't the school itself but a professor who that's all we did all uh, in his class, every class you had to do a presentation in front of the entire class, and people had to debate the points you were making, uh, or everybody failed. And it wasn't a more, you know, we all went in as a bunch of engineering introverts, didn't want to talk to each other, 
And by the end, we were having very awesome debates about stuff. And it got a lot of us over that hurdle. So anyways, I agree with you 100% on, on there's a failure on basic communication, conflict resolution. I And I personally, this is me showing my generational issue. I think it's getting worse. I think the ability for people to deal with conflict is getting worse. The ability for people to listen to people with diverse opinions is getting worse in the current political environment that we're, uh, that we're in. So I, anyways, I'm done. <laughs> well, hey, James, uh, that's a great wrap up to the conversation. Really appreciate you joining the show today. As a thank you, I'm going to send you a Jim Harbaugh poster. I expect you to post it somewhere throughout your house for show and tell for the next year or so. So I expect you to honor that. Um, but hey, we love uh, what you're doing on LinkedIn and everything like that with your educational videos. Plug yourself. Where can where can people find you? Do you do Twitter too, or or what's the deal? Just find me on LinkedIn. I deleted Facebook and Instagram, and I never get on Twitter anymore. So smart decision. I've had enough of social media. Fair enough. Smart decision. Well, hey, James, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Episode three of the Connecting Construction Podcast. You can find us on Spotify. See you guys next time.